My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And it's just good to be together with God's people and worshiping together. And now we're going to hear the word a little bit. Um, Shauna's not up here. Usually she does the announcements and she's a lot cuter than me, but we don't really have any announcements. So there's no reason for her to be up here. So that's why you have to look at me right away. But I will say if you're visiting for the first time, really good to have you here. And if you'd like to find out more about this church and what we believe and things like that, stop by at the hub. Uh, and tell them you're visiting, and we've got some information and a CD that we'd love to share with you. Please turn off your cell phones, pagers, iPods, computers, any other kind of noisemakers. I'd appreciate it. I just heard one go off. Brilliant. And uh, if anyone with you starts to be a, a distraction of any sort, um, uh, just know that we've got soundproof happy rooms in the back, and we encourage you to take them back there. As I said, there's no announcements, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of information that you need to know. See, you may have noticed this, but we're trying to wean the congregation off of our verbal announcements because we, all, we say all that stuff in the bulletin and, and most of you can read, so we're going to trust that you're reading that. And, and so, so uh, just because we're not announcing anything does not mean that there's not important stuff to know. So read those bulletins. And like, for example, there's a real important Q&A session coming up uh, on, on the Old Testament violence and stuff like that on May 11th. You may have seen the cute little pictures of me and Paul Eddy in our cherub outfits. We had to actually dress up for that. It was really embarrassing, but uh, that will be happening. But see, that's the kind of thing we're not going to announce because uh, it's in the bulletin. You can read. We're also not going to announce that my, uh, my new book's out, uh, Present Perfect on Practicing the Presence of God. We could announce that, but why? Because you've already got it in the bulletin. So, so just know that, and you can pick up those books out, out in the gathering area in the book place. All right, enough non-announcements. Let's get into the Word. Uh, we're uh, in the middle of this series on scandalous love. It's been scandalous. It's been wonderful. Uh, it's impacting uh, a lot of folks, impacting me uh, as I'm going through it, and uh, it's just been beautiful. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message. Uh, it was about the centrality of, of the Jesus revelation, how the revelation of God in Christ trumps everything else. It raised a lot of questions for people, and that's good. Think theologically. That's, that's, that's great. That's the kind of stuff we'll be talking about on the Q&A on May 11th. It's a topic I'm, I'm really obsessed with on how to reconcile Jesus with all that violence in the Old Testament and stuff. I'm working on a book. Uh, I've been doing it for about a year. It's up to 450 pages. Uh, but I'm really just jazzed on that topic, obsessed with that topic. Um, so come to that Q&A session. But that's, that, that's, it's been a catalyst for that. And a lot of people, the, the coin's kind of dropping in the slot. Uh, it's just beautiful. On this last Thursday morning as I was praying about this message and, and starting to put the, get together my thoughts, I don't know if you ever have this, but, but did you ever like get zingers once in a while? This, this like little from heaven, these zingers where it just all of a sudden hits you. And I got zung on Thursday morning uh, where I just felt uh, just this overwhelming sense of God's love. Um, you always know it but, it's, it, but once in a while you just all of a sudden grasp it a little bit more. And the thing about God's love is when you grasp it a little bit more, all it does is reinforce its ungraspability. It, it, it's, 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 it's limitless. And you understand those moments that you can never, ever comprehend uh, the, the, and exhaust the, the love of God. And, and so I was just kind of in this state, and I, I was just moved so deeply by this awareness of God's love. But there's also kind of an ache in my heart, honestly, as I'm putting together this message, because I have such a passion to help people get this. For the coin to drop in the slot, to get freed from some of our, our really uh, sub-Christian views of God. And I'm just so aware, especially in that moment of experiencing God's love, maybe more aware now than I've ever been, that words can't possibly do it. 
In fact, the words feel utterly, utterly, utterly inadequate. I, you can't communicate this. It's beyond communicating. Which then reinforces the sense of, 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 of importance on just the, the realization that only God can reveal God. Only God can open our eyes to see what otherwise we wouldn't see. He may use words to do it, but the words themselves are going to be completely inadequate. God has to do it, which means praying for a revelation of God's unsurpassable love is, is all important. In the series that we're doing now, but always. Praying that God would open up our eyes. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's talking about Satan here. And the reason he did that is so that they cannot see, they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. The word glory there, it, it just refer, refers to God's character on display, which means it's God's love on display, God's shining, awesome love. But when the enemy, Satan, blinds us, we can't see that glory in Christ. He is the image of God. But for believers, Paul goes on to say in the same passage, he says, uh, God has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, that shiny revelation of love displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. For non-believers, and believers struggle with this too, the God of this age blinds us, keeps us from seeing that radiant glory in the face of Jesus Christ, which means this is first and foremost a spiritual issue. It's not a logical issue. It's not pr primarily an exegetical issue. It's not a verbal issue. It's a spiritual issue, which is why we always need to be praying that God would shine his light in our hearts to help us to see what otherwise we could never see. That's why Jesus in John 17, his last public prayer, pray, prays this. He says, uh, you know, Father, uh, help them to see that you have loved them with the same love you have for me. In fact, Jesus in that same prayer says, I, I've shared the glory that you gave me, I've shared with them. And what is glory? It's, it's the awesome shininess of God's love. He shares it with us. But we can't get that on our own. Now, we, we need a revelation of God to really begin to grasp that. A revelation of God that will cut through the calluses of, that we have in our hearts uh, against that. That's why Paul prays, as we've seen the last two weeks, he prays that we may have power together with all the Lord's people, power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And by the way, it's infinite in all directions. And that we might know this love that surpasses knowledge. Know that which is beyond knowledge. In our normal minds, our, our fallen, finite brains, we, can, we don't have the power to, to know God's love. In our natural fallen state, we instinct, in, instinctively find it unbelievable. It's too good to be true. It can't possibly be true. In our natural fallen brains, our, our, our head is full of buts, as we said last week. Yes, but, yes, but. And we always qualify this and find ways of getting around it. By our natural in, in, inclinations, we could never on our own believe this, let alone grasp it, which is why Paul prays that we might be strengthened. Strengthened to understand these things. One of the ways that you could tell the true gospel from all false forms of the gospel is that the true gospel reveals a love of God that is so great you can't believe it. It's so great you need a divine revelation in order to have the power to believe that it is that good. Uh, if the gospel you're hearing doesn't require a supernatural intervention to believe it, well, that's not the true gospel. It's some watered-down, compromised version of the true gospel. 
We want the true gospel, which means the true glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And for that, we've got to pray. So I want to pray right now. In fact, I, I, we, we have people who are part of our prayer team who pray through every service. And they prayed for you when you came in. They'll be praying for you when you leave. They cover everything in prayer. But on this message right now, I'd like to have about two dozen people around the auditorium who will keep me and this message covered in prayer as I'm preaching. Will you raise your hand if you'll covenant with me to be praying for me? You can still listen. Thank you in the back. Uh, but keep me covered in prayer. All right. That's great. Let's pray right now. Lord, for every person in this auditorium, for all of our pod congregation, our pod parishioners, and those listening in some other venue, we together pray that you, Lord, would open our eyes to begin to see what is otherwise unseeable and to grasp what is otherwise ungraspable, ungraspable, to know what is unknowable and comprehend what is incomprehensible, and that is your love. Empower us, God, to grasp that which is ungraspable. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive the full beauty and depth and power, transforming grace of your magnificently beautiful love. Help us, Lord God, to experience it as though for the first time, to never get used to this. Open our eyes and empower us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 The word gospel means good news. Euangelion in Greek. It means good news. And the true gospel is good news. In fact, the, the true gospel is great news. It's the greatest news you've ever heard. The true gospel is incomprehensibly beautiful. That's how you know it's the true gospel. It requires a supernatural anointing and revelation in order to believe it. It's that good. But the gospel that many people get, in fact, probably the majority of us listening have gotten at some point in our life, that gospel is not all that beautiful. In fact, sometimes it's positively ugly. It certainly isn't the kind of a gospel that requires a supernatural revelation to believe. Does this story sound familiar? Here's one version of this. Uh, probably the most prevalent version in America. It goes something like this. God created us for whatever reason, and he put us in the garden, and then he put us to the test. He put a tree in the middle and said, don't eat of this tree. Kind of like you put a cookie in front of a little child and say, don't eat of the cookie. And so he, he tested us. And there was a rule, and the rule is we're not supposed to eat of this forbidden tree. But we broke the rule, and God gets very mad when you break a rule. He's furious, and he's been furious pretty much ever since. He tried to fix the problem at some point by raising up a nation, the Israelites, and he did it by giving them a bunch of rules, but they weren't good rule keepers either, so he, 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 that plan failed, and he got madder and madder. Finally, as a sort of a plan B, he sends Jesus into this world, and then this raging God who's so mad at the rule breakers ends up taking his wrath out on Jesus, so now he won't have to send us rule breakers to hell. And that is the gospel. Does that sound familiar? Probably some of you are saying, well, yeah, that, isn't that what we're supposed to believe? Um, what's the problem? I, I submit to you that while that version of the gospel I just gave you bears some resemblance to the true gospel, it's actually a rather gross distortion. It doesn't have any of the beauty of the real gospel. Think about it. Did, does it require a supernatural revelation to believe that version of the gospel? Is there a love that is so unfathomable that you can't possibly believe it unless God empowers you involved in that version of the gospel? I don't think so. Now, there's something missing in that story that I just told you. And what's missing, what's wrong, brings us to, I think, the, the core problem, the core problem that we all face when it comes to really grasping and being transformed by the true gospel, the true love of God. We're getting down to the absolute center of the center here. 
And to, to talk about this core problem, it's the core problem I think that's, that, that, that afflicts human beings. To get at that, I, I want to talk about the difference between a covenant and a contract. A covenant and a contract, they look very similar on the surface, but in fact, they're profoundly different. And the difference between a covenant and a contract will elucidate, will illuminate the difference between the true gospel and the version of the gospel I just gave you. Here's the difference. A contract is like an employment uh, deal. You work for me, I'll give you this much money. Or it's like a purchase agreement. When you purchase a house or a car or whatever, uh, you know, you get something for something. It's a tit-for-tat sort of arrangement. It's a, a quid pro quo kind of arrangement. That's a contract. A covenant isn't like that. At least not a covenant of agape love, which is what I'm going to be talking about throughout this message. A covenant of agape love is like a marriage. And folks, a marriage is not a contract. A marriage is not a 50-50 deal. A marriage is a 100%, 100% deal. Your very being is to be involved in it. If you try to do a marriage like a contract, it just does not work very well. The best you're going to do doesn't come close to what God has uh, in mind in marriages. A contract is a deal. A deal between parties. It's between us. Whereas a covenant is us. We're not going to deal with one another. We're pledging ourselves to one another. So a contract... Uh, is always about a law, whereas a covenant is about love. It's a, it's a pledge of love. I pledge myself to you. Contracts are always about these laws and it, it, the terms of the contract. But a covenant is just this pledge of love. Contracts are always conditional. You, know, you can call them off if the deal is broken, whereas a covenant is unconditional. A covenant of agape love, anyways, is always unconditional because it involves you pledging yourself to the other person regardless what the other person does. That's why we say for better or for worse in marriage covenants. And a contract is always evaluative. What I mean by that is it always involves assessing things, judging things, measuring things. How are we each doing in, t- in terms of keeping our contract? There's always this assessment, evaluation going on. Whereas in a covenant of agape love, it's about accepting the other person as they are because you've pledged yourself to the other person as they are. They look similar, but in fact, there's a world of difference between a contract and a covenant. The Bible talks a lot about covenants. You hardly hear anything about contracts. Our problem, our core problem, I believe, is that we look at the world, everything in the world, in contract terms, rather than in agape love covenant terms. We look at everything in the world and interpret everything through the categories of law, and deal-making, rather than through the categories of love and pledge-making. It takes us back to the very beginning, the story in Genesis 3. I I submit to you that the story in Genesis 3 is the story about how we as a race have fallen from a covenant, agape love covenant worldview, to a contract worldview. It takes us back to the original sin of the Bible. Now most of you know the story, and I don't want to take the time out to read the whole thing, But I submit to you, it's a story of falling from a covenant worldview to a contract worldview. In the beginning, uh, there's Adam and Eve in this garden. And the Bible says they walked with God in the cool of the day, in in the late afternoon when when it wasn't hot. And it's just the Bible's way of communicating that they had this relationship with God that was innocent. And they just hung out with God and God hung out with them and they enjoyed one another. And that's what life's supposed to be about. There's an innocence that's there. But the door story does say that there was in the middle of this garden two trees, a tree of life, which was God's provision for life, but also this tree, forbidden tree. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And it wasn't there as sort of a, a, a test, a cookie in front of a child. It was God's loving, no trespassing sign. The two trees in the middle of the garden, life revolved around these two things. God's saying, trust me for my provision of life, but also honor my prohibition. And my prohibition is, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What God is saying there is this. Be like me. I created you to be in my image in terms of your character. Expand my love. Be like me in terms of how you treat one another, how you treat the animals, and how you treat the earth. That's all right there in Genesis 1. Be like me in that respect. But don't try to be like me in terms of your wisdom. Don't try to be like me in terms of thinking you know and can define good and evil, or that you're supposed to police good and evil, that you're supposed to be, ju- you're supposed to be the judges of good and evil. No, leave that to me. I'll be the judge. You just be lovers in my image. And that was God's loving no trespassing sign. Unfortunately, as you know, in the story, Satan shows up. Satan is called, interestingly enough, the accuser. The accuser. That's what he does. He accuses. He shows up. He first accuses God, paints this picture of God that is just monstrous, convinces uh, Adam and Eve that God is not this all-loving God who's got their best interests in mind, convinces them that this, this tree is not a no trespassing sign, but this tree is, is rather the key to becoming fully actualized as human beings. And God is threatened by that tree. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of it because he doesn't want any competition. I paints a real pathetic, gross view of God. Unfortunately, it works. Adam and Eve are seduced into rebellion. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ever since. Because that story is not just a story about once upon a time, but the story of our lives right now. When we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we sin into existence a new kind of being. It's the humanity that we find now. A miserable creature, really. An alien from what God originally intended. Uh, a judging little creature. Instead of... Instead of uh, just walking with God in the cool of the day and being innocent and okay hanging out with God as God hangs out with us Instead of that being enough now we aspire to be like God That's what the temptation was all about you can be like God not in the way that he wants you to be but in this other way in terms of your wisdom So we aspire with this impulse to be Lord of our own life To call our own shots and to rule other people as much as possible as well. We want to be God and with that impulse comes this uh, th- th- this inclination this instinctive habit we have of always Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, trying to be wise like God, trying to think that we know, trying to think it's our right to judge. We're always evaluating. We're always assessing. We're always sizing things up. We do it compulsively. It starts with ourselves. See, the accuser gets in our head, and he makes us into little accusers. That's what we do. It starts with ourselves. We accuse ourselves. And you see this in the Genesis narrative because Adam and Eve, they're ashamed. The minute they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, they start judging themselves and they're embarrassed to be around each other and they've got to cover themselves up with fig leaves. They've lost their innocence. They're full of shame. When we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens is we get a mirror installed in our brain, a distorted mirror. But we're always looking in that mirror and saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? How's it going? How do I look? What do people think? How's my performance? We're always looking and evaluating ourselves. It's as though I've got two me's in my head. There's the accused and then there's the accuser. The reason we're not really at home in our own heads is because we're trapped in a skull where there's this nagging voice and it's us. Look what you did. You could have done better. What about this? What would they think about me? Constantly yapping at us. It's this miserable self-awareness. It wasn't part of God's original design. It wasn't supposed to be like this. 
You can't walk with God calmly and in a relaxed way in the cool of the day if you've got this little pesty accuser in your brain. Think about it. Think about it. When, 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 when you have peak experiences of love or those peak experiences of joy, uh, uh, of happiness, or of peace, or adventure, what makes those peak experiences peak experiences? And I hope you have them once in a while. They don't last very long usually. But what makes them peak experiences is that for that moment at least, for, for a limited time, the accuser shuts up. You lose yourself. You're abandoned. You're, you're not like assessing yourself or assessing anything. No, you're in that moment. You're, you're just wholly there. It's so good. It's so, it's so fun to be free. You're like a child who hasn't yet learned to be self-critical and, 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 and you know, can just dance and not worry about what people think. The minute you start assessing yourself, the moment's gone. It's gone. The accuser starts yapping again, and you lose that moment. But see, God originally intended us to live life as this relaxing walk with him in the cool of the day without any of this, this internal conflict, polarity going on, me versus me. On top of that, we feel empty on the inside because of our rebellion. We're alienated from our creator. We were made for our creator. He's our source of life and worth and significance. But, but now we're separated from him, and we feel that we... Everybody in the core of their being misses God. We want to get back there somehow. They maybe don't know that. In fact, most people don't know that. But that's that yearning we talked about on Easter morning a couple weeks ago, that same suit, uh, that, that yearning for something indefinable that nothing seems to satisfy. But it's like you remember something, that memory, and you yearn for that. It really is the yearning of a lover for a beloved. It's a yearning that I have for my wife when I'm on the road for, for a week or so. I, oh, there's this ache that's there. That's what it really is, but here's what happens. Watch this. Because we got the accuser in our head, what happens is that yearning is an alien thing. If we were connected with God, we wouldn't be having that. And so it's, there's a part of us that knows it's not supposed to be like this, but the accuser then indicts us for it. It really is the most authentic part of our being. It's, it's our homing device but, but now we've got the accuser in our head, and so it feels to us often like there's something wrong with us. There's something defective about us. We're guilty. It's this chronic, nagging sense of offness. Because this feeling, this yearning, this same soup wasn't supposed to be like that. So we got the accuser accusing us. Then what happens is we accuse other people, invariably. And the reason is because the accused part of me, inside of me, wants to deflect attention. If I can accuse somebody else, well, then it momentarily relieves me a little bit. It's a little bit like when I was a kid. I remember one time I, I was trying to make this little, uh, these little thin wooden airplane things, and I broke the, the wing on it, and I swore. Unfortunately, my stepmother was around, and she heard that. So I was in deep trouble. The punishment we got for using dirty words in my house was she would take out the dish soap and open your mouth up and just start squirting it in, and you had to swallow it. It was nasty. So I'm heading for the you know, soap guillotine kind of thing. But the grace of God shined on me because my sister did something even worse. And there was a conflict. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden my mom was getting so mad at her. And then she swore at my mom. Whoa! If, if swearing is bad, swearing at your stepmother is even worse. And now they got into an actual fist fight with one another. And I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. I, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, that was really terrible. Because oh, that's compared to what I did. I, you know, I mean, that's terrible. I, I, I'm, I'm, my sin's like a minor sin. So I feel good for a moment. I escaped the wrath of stepmom, uh, you know, because someone else was there. 
And that's what we do in our brain all the time. You see it in, in, the, in the biblical narrative when, you know, first thing Adam does is he blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Uh, then Cain blames Abel. And it, we've been blaming each other ever since. Because it feels good. I'm not so pathetic maybe if I can find somebody who's more pathetic or at least convince myself that they're, they're worse off than me. So we're always doing this comparing and contrasting thing. Yeah, maybe I gossip, but at least I'm not gay. You know, I can feel good about that. I, I, maybe I'm a glutton, but at least, you know, I, I don't to go and I'm not a criminal. Maybe I got lust in my brain, but at least I'm not actually having an affair. And see, read Matthew 5. So much of Jesus' teachings was meant to just to cut us off of the kneecap with all that measuring, sizing up sort of stuff in order to get at that accuser in our brain. But that's what we do. Trying to find, see, if we can convince ourselves that our sins are less, well, then we, we feel good a little bit. So we accuse ourselves, and therefore we accuse others. We deflect accusation. All of it comes right from Satan. And then, then the, the third thing is, is we invariably accuse God. We judge God. Our, our, our eating from the forbidden tree is at work in our brain all the time. So you see this in the passage in Genesis where you know, God shows up and Adam and Eve now hide. They hide. They're, they're terrified. Now, the day before, in terms of the narrative, the day before, they were walking with God the cool of the day. He was their friend. Now God shows up and they're terrified. What's up with this? God didn't change. They changed. What's changed is they put on these lens. They're looking at God through spectacles. The spectacles of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The spectacles of accusation, sizing up, measuring, fear, accusation. And so they see God to be a monster. And they hide from him. We project onto God all of our inner accusations. We judge God. We make him out to be the accuser. He's the perpetually angry, ticked-off judge in the sky. He's the cosmic cop. He's the cosmic lawyer who's always building a case against us for that dreaded judgment day. That's why we're so afraid of death. What if that turned out to be true? For some people, he's the capricious hangman, roaming the streets and arbitrarily hangs whoever makes him mad or there doesn't have to be a reason. We're just glad that it wasn't us this time around. So he's the God up there who, in his anger, will just send down an arbitrary earthquake uh, or a pestilence or a famine or some cancer maybe. Or how about he takes your kid away, you know, uh, and, and, and he's arbitrarily up there, you know, pushing the, the tragedy buttons, the capricious. We make God out to be the accuser. And see, folks, this is how. Holy Spirit, help us to get this. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. This is how the enemy deceives us. This is how he puts the blinders on that Paul talked about earlier. So we cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're seeing God as the accuser, which means we're seeing the accuser as God. And who's the accuser? It's Satan. And that's been his plan all along. He wants to be God. So if he can get these miserable subjects to think that he is God, well, then he's, he's accomplished that. He blinds us. He blinds us. And he does it by getting inside of our heads with this accusing stuff. This is our fault. This is the core issue in our existence. We see everything in terms of legalities, everything in terms of rules and rule breaking, everything in accusatory, accusatory terms, everything in contract terms, everything in let's make a deal terms. We're defined by, we define everything else by our, 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 our tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We judge ourselves, we judge others, we judge God, we judge the world. And see, in that judgment framework, in this contract worldview, there is no place for agape love, unconditional anything. You can't have unconditional love in a world that's defined by how you assess things and size things, the deals that you make and the quid pro quo, tit for tat kind of arrangement. 
No, there's no place for agape love. The best you can hope for, the best news you can hope for, is a good deal. A good deal. Maybe getting off the hook for the way you broke a deal. So it's not surprising, is it, that when the quote-unquote good news gets told in that fallen let's-make-a-deal framework, it comes out as a, a legal deal. A legal deal. It's all about legalities. The cosmic lawyer, God, has a case against us. In fact, he's pronounced an eternal death sentence on us. But fortunately, Jesus took our place. The angry judge vented his wrath against Jesus so that now we don't have to be sent to hell because we are rule breakers. And breaking one rule makes you, it makes you deserve hell. Jesus was slaughtered by a raging father so that now we don't have to be slaughtered. And in that let's make a deal sort of framework, we, we're grateful. Of course, we're grateful. But we're grateful in the way that I was grateful that my sister was getting a beating instead of me. Yeah, I escaped the wrath. But that didn't make me, like, love my stepmother. It didn't make me want to, like, hang out with her in the cool of the day. No, no, if anything, that, that, just, confirmed, that just confirmed my fear of her. This is why I have this ongoing fear of her. That version of the gospel, that legal gospel, isn't the beautiful good news of the New Testament. It has a resemblance, but it doesn't capture the beauty of the good news. Ask yourself the question, does it take supernatural empowerment to believe that cosmic lawyer story I just told? Does it, is there such an unfathomable love there that only God could empower you to believe it? I don't think so. There's nothing unfathomably beautiful about that story. It's just a fortunate deal. We escaped wrath for another round. That version is a legal story. It's not the good news love story of the true gospel. That's a story of a contract getting tweaked. It's not the story of an agape love covenant being fulfilled. It's a story of God saying, let's make a deal. It's not the story of God saying, let me transform you by my overwhelming, unfathomable love. That version of the story is a story about a cosmic lawyer and some criminals who mysteriously got acquitted. But it's not the story of the good shepherd who desperately out of love goes looking for that lost sheep. Or it's not the story of that lady who uh, uh, desperately looks for that precious coin that she lost. It's not the story of the father of the prodigal son who just unconditionally accepts the son coming back, smelling like pigs and, and, and having lost his inheritance. He unconditionally embraces him and throws a party for him. It doesn't capture the beauty of that story. It's not the story of, of our heavenly husband coming looking for a bride and, and will do anything to acquire this bride. It's not the story of a God who's so crazy madly in love with humanity he will go to hell on, on, on our behalf no see it, it, it misses that part of the story there's a legal skeletal framework of it but all the beauty has been sucked out of it the good news the real good news the, the news about the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ is not about a tweaked contract it's not about Jesus coming as a plan B 2,000 years ago to fix something that was broken it's about a covenant of agape love that reaches back before the creation of the world. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. This, this has the power to reframe everything. It's going to take me about 10 minutes to unpack it, so will someone tell the children's ministry we're going to go a little bit over here. I'm getting a little worked up here. But Holy Spirit, help us to grasp this. Look at you guys. We've seen this the last two weeks. God is love. Simplest and most profound teaching in the Bible. God is love. God is agape love. He didn't start loving at one point. Love isn't first and foremost a verb for him. He didn't like all of a sudden decide, hey, I think I'll start loving. No, he is. From eternity to eternity, he is perfect, unwavering, unsurpassable, unimprovable, unfathomable, incomprehensible, beautiful love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is that. That didn't start. God is 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the ecstatic dance of perfect love, joyful love. And from, the be, from before the beginning of creation, read Ephesians 1, it was always the plan of the Trinity to share that. That's what love does, to share that. From the start, God wanted to share who he is with human beings. From the start, God wanted to invite human beings in on this dance. From the start, plan A, God wanted to become one with us so that we could become one with him and become, as 1 Peter says, participants of the divine nature, which means participants of the dance, participants of the love, participants of the joy, and to do that throughout eternity. That, that plan was there before the creation of the world. From the start, read Ephesians 1 and other places, God planned on acquiring a bride. That wasn't just a rescue mission. God planned on entering into a covenant-like marriage with us, an agape, an agape covenant with us. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, that the goal is for our relationship with God, the joy of that relationship to resemble something like the joy and the ecstasy of the one flesh marriage relationship, as he talks about it in Ephesians 5. That kind of joy throughout eternity. Which means that, God's, that Jesus coming to this earth wasn't a plan B to fix a problem. Jesus coming was always plan A. And he came to fulfill... The yearning of God for this agape covenant of love. He came to acquire a bride. Now, Jesus had to die on the cross. True. Absolutely true. But that doesn't exhaust the reason why he came. He came because the bride, he wanted to acquire a bride. And he died because the bride he came to acquire had gotten herself in trouble. We had foolishly and sinfully gone after other lovers. We'd gotten ourselves involved in bondage to Satan. And we were headed for destruction. So yes, he gave his life for us. But folks, Jesus didn't become a human being and die on the cross because God was mad. He came, became a human being and died on the cross because God was madly in love. He's madly in love. Because God is covenant love. Everything God does is done out of, out of covenant love. And this is what covenant love does. It's like this. If, I, if, if my wife, Shelly, is, is, is in a house and it's on fire and she's trapped, I'm going in for her. I, I'll, I'll break down the doors, I'll break the windows, I'll, I'll get cut up, maybe I'll burn alive, but I'm going in. Why? Because I'm madly in love with her and that's what covenantal love does. And even if she got herself into that building uh, through, through her own foolishness, I'm not going to sit out there and judge her for that, I'm going in. Because that's what covenant love does, even if she's there for sinful reasons. She would never ever do this, but suppose she, she was there to meet some guy and have an affair. And, and, and it turns out the guy was a maniac and, and tied her up and then set the house on fire. And I knew that. I'm still going in for her. I'm going in because I'm madly in love. And that's, what, that, that's the kind of madness that love brings you to. And I wouldn't be having her guilt on my mind when I did that. I wouldn't be going in out of anger. I wouldn't be going in because I'm mad. I'm going in because I'm madly in love. That's what covenantal love does. And I would trust that my self-sacrificial love would be the thing that would win her back to me. That's what covenantal love does. I'll win her over. My heart would be breaking, but my first thought would be, I'm concerned about her. She needs to be rescued, and so I'm going in. The fact that there was sin involved, the fact that the house is on fire, is not going to stop me from pursuing my bride, and it doesn't stop God from pursuing his bride. He's coming anyways, even though the house is on fire. Amen. This is exactly, this is exactly, Holy Spirit, help us to see. This is exactly the relationship between God and us and us and God. God, from the start, planned on becoming one with us and acquiring a human bride. But his bride was unfaithful and chased after 
other lovers and foolishly got herself tied up in the house and the house was set on fire by her sin, our own sin, empowering the devil to light the match. And God looked upon us and saw our plight, but he said, you know what, I still want my bride. I'm going in. I'm going in. And it wasn't because he's mad. It wasn't because he's mad. It's because he's madly in love. He's mad. He's crazy in love. And this is what covenantal love does. And God is from eternity to eternity covenantal love. Jesus gave his life for us not to tweak some contract. Not as a plan B. He came to fulfill this beautiful, marvelous covenant of agape love that never began. It was there before time started. He gave his life for us not to deflect the Father's wrath, but to fulfill the Father's covenantal love. He sacrificed himself while we were yet sinners to win us back, to win us back, to woo us by displaying the glory of God in him, the radiant, shiny love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, do you see who my heart is? Do you see who I really am? Will you come back? I, I, want this, I want you to share in this dance throughout all eternity. That's why, that's why when the whole thing is complete, he doesn't like get mad and say, look what you made me do. No, there's no payback on this or anything. It's, it's, it's done. He throws a party. The, the good shepherd, when he finds the sheep, comes home, invites everybody in, says, let's have a party. The lady, when she finds the lost coin, she doesn't scold the coin. She, she says, let's have a party. Uh, the, the father, when the prodigal son returns, he doesn't say, you know, okay, time to start earning back that inheritance or look what you did or do you know the grief you put me through? No, he won't hear a word of it. He just says, get the fatted calf, let's throw a party. God is a party animal. He's throwing a party because his bride that once was lost has now been found. That's why, you know, the Bible says this, Hebrews 12. To Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He, there was joy even before the cross. In fact, it was joy that led him to the cross. He scorned its shame. He didn't come angry. Yeah, he, he, yeah he's angry at sin, but he's angry at sin because of his love for us, and he sees how this destroys us. But there was joy in his heart. In fact, it says in, in John 15, Jesus says, I've come that my joy might be fulfilled in you. I want you to share. I want to share this joy. That's why I'm here. He's not angry. He's not mad. He's madly in love and wants to share the joy. And the prospect of being with you. Notice that the sheep and the coin and the sun and those stories are all individual. It wasn't for like humanity in general. No, it was for you. You individually. And it happens to apply to all of us individually, so it's, it's for all of us. But... It was for you. Your name was there when he went to the cross. He didn't enter our burning house because he's mad. He entered because he's madly in love. And he did it with joy. Because that's what covenantal love does. And God is, from eternity to eternity, covenantal love. Beautiful love, unsurpassable love. How we, how we need to repent of our pictures. And that doesn't mean like beat ourselves up. It just means turn from all the insulting pictures we have framed in our knowledge of good and evil where we see him as the accuser and we fear him we hide from him he's the watcher in the sky who's always assessing no 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 he's the father running down the street like a crazy man wanting to embrace us he's the husband without giving a second thought wants to dive into that house and rescue the bride he wants us to be able to walk with him in the cool of the day without having any sort of fear about it or introspection about it or inner polarity about it just to silence that and return to the innocence of a little child holding the father's hand trusting his character trusting his character that it looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross I'm going to end just by praying once again that 
the Holy Spirit empowers us to dare to believe this and dare to come against everything else in our brain that conflicts with it. I want you to know that when I'm done, the prayer team will be up here, and if you want to come forward for prayer for any reason whatsoever, I encourage you to do so. Or if you just want to pray on your own, I encourage you to do that. But Holy Spirit, help us to see. Help us to see. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Give us the courage to believe that you are like this. That you are this beautiful. Holy Spirit, empower us to begin to see the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God and to know that love that passes all knowledge. Free us from the bondage of the prison of our inner accuser. Free us from the bondage of accusing others to medicate our own pain. Free us from the bondage of accusing you. Return us to innocence and freedom to dance without inhibition, forgetting ourselves in the presence of your unwavering, beautiful, unfathomable love. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Go out and love on the world.